the last time we were together, I spoke about God's word to us from Romans chapter 9 verses 1 to 5 and Paul's heart and hope for Israel. In Romans 9, 1 to 5, we saw that the Apostle Paul indicated that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his kinsmen, his fellow Israelites, who implied, from what Paul says, are presently accursed and cut off from a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. He even wrote to the believers in Rome that he loves these fellow Israelites so much that if it were possible, even though he knows that it isn't, he would pray to God that he himself, on their behalf, would rather be damned if he could otherwise see them redeemed by Christ. The passion and the pathos in Paul's heart is astounding. We even wondered aloud last time whether any of us have that kind of love for those around us. Paul also goes on to ponder the very compelling question about whether these same Israelites who, according to Romans 9, 4 and 5, have been told by God that they were adopted into His spiritual family, have been blessed with the glory of God's presence, have been granted the very covenants of God, the giving of the law, possessing as no other nation the worship of Yahweh, and were given the promises which were first made to their patriarchs, and from whom they have even seen the very God-man, Jesus Himself, come into their midst, And yet, in spite of all these blessings, are they forever cut off from Christ? That's the question. It appears unthinkable. And as Paul anticipates that very dilemma, he moves into verses 6 to 13 with a ready answer to that huge problem. The main issue in verses 6 to 13 is that Paul wants to answer here in Romans 9 whether God's word of promise can really be counted upon. If these Israelites who have been promised all of these realities that I just mentioned to you, according to verses 4 and 5, are indeed presently cut off from Jesus Christ, then maybe this means God's intention to fulfill His word of promise to these Israelites isn't going to happen. This even brings into question the very character of God the Father Himself. Can He not be trusted? And if He cannot be trusted on the matter of keeping His word to His, to his chosen people, the Israelites, what about these Gentiles in the Roman church? This gospel which Paul has been preaching to them Is it too a hoax? Can God be counted upon to maintain His Word? Is He going to keep His promise? There might certainly be those in the church, either Jew or Gentile, who are asking this question 
Is God going to fulfill His promises or not? Listen to Paul's answer in verses 6 to 13. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is a very, very provocative text. And I want you to see this morning... The focus of our attention on three main points to this passage. Number one, we'll call it the sure declaration of God's promises to Israel. The sure declaration of God's promises to Israel. We'll see that in verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. Secondly, I want us to see the specific delineation of God's promises to Israel. The specific delineation of God's promises to Israel. In the latter part of verse 7, going all the way through the first part of verse 11, and then in verses 12 and 13. And then thirdly, the sovereign determination of God's promises to Israel. The sovereign determination of God's promises to Israel in the latter part of verse 11. Three key points, three major points to this passage. Let's look at the first one. The sure declaration of God's promises to Israel. Look back at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, Paul says. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Here is Paul's sure declaration to the dilemma that no doubt was posed to him in his day. In all of these promises and privileges which were mentioned in verses 4 and 5, if they are true, then those who are presently cut off from Christ have not seen these promises come to pass. And therefore, it appears as though the word of God's promise has failed. And Paul's answer to this is no. No. It is not as though the word of God has failed. The answer, he says, is that not every single Israelite was ever intended to be a part of those who are considered true Israel. That's his answer. 
Ah, Paul makes an immediate discrimination about what it is that constitutes true Israel. In other words, he says that God's character is intact, it is impeccable, he will keep his word of promise. It was simply never a promise made to every single Israelite without exception. That's an important point. That's the point that he's making. The salvation of Israel, the salvation of certain Israelites is sure. The salvation of the entire race is not. In other words, this is limited. This is a particular redemption for only those Israelites who are a part of true Israel. Notice the precise way Paul declares this truth. Look at the latter part of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel, that is, not every single Israelite who without distinction, who has ever lived, Paul says, belong to Israel. You see, back in Paul's day, and certainly from the very beginning of Israel's history, the assumption was that if you were born into a Jewish family... And if you therefore had that Jewish lineage, you were automatically a part of God's saving activity. You were in God's kingdom if you were born into the race known as the Israelites. You remember when the Jewish leaders told even Jesus himself, But we have Abraham for our father. What's implied? Well, we know we're in. Because Abraham is our father. He's the father of the faith. We know that we're a part of the kingdom. They were convinced if they had an Israelite heritage that they would be ushered into God's kingdom. But notice Paul's answer in the first part of verse 7. He says, and not all, that's inclusive, and not all are children of Abraham Implied merely because they are his offspring. You can't claim this, he's saying. Just because you have been physically descended from Abraham himself, you're a part of his lineage, doesn't automatically mean that all who are in that line are truly his offspring. Just because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham himself doesn't mean that you will receive God's word of promise automatically. As one commentator put it, God's word of promise is a count of grace, not race. You cannot assume that if you were born into a Jewish family, you were guaranteed a part in the kingdom of God. And you know, there may be another dimension here that Paul is addressing especially with these Gentile believers in Rome, it is possible that they, these Gentiles, might be concluding that what Paul has thus far said in the book of Romans, that God has actually replaced Israel with the blessings that were intended for them, but have now been transferred to the church. All of these things that Paul has been saying, even including the very word of adoption that he said in Romans 8 to all who believe. Uh, Maybe they're seeing the idea that, well, we are now involved in God's blessings. Maybe God has forfeited all of these blessings 
to the race of the Israelites, and now it's being transferred to us, the church, even we ourselves, the Gentiles. In essence, the church has replaced Israel. And that explains why, in part, God has cut off the Jews. That could be what, in part, is going on here. All the promises of adoption, which we heard about, as I said, in Romans 8, are for those who call on Christ. And since the Roman church is made up of mostly Gentile believers, it is possible that God has forever forsaken the Jews as an ethnic people, the Israelites. Maybe all these promises and privileges which were once promised that would be accrued to the Israelites have now been given to the Gentile world because the Israelites have rejected their Messiah. The church has become spiritual Israel, someone might suggest. Well, I submit to you that the whole of Romans 9 to 11, Paul says in answer to that question, no. The church has not replaced Israel. Oh, there are manifold blessings that come to the church, but it comes to the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. There's no replacement theology here. Paul will go on in Romans 9 to 11 to talk much about this Jew slash Gentile question and how we're to understand the the very nature of this relationship between Jews and Gentiles. But for now, he is specifically answering the question about whether or not every single Israelite has been cut off. And his emphatic answer is no. No. Understand, Paul says, God's word of promise is going to be fulfilled. It is God's word of promise. He will fulfill it. God's promises was not every, uh, God's promises were not for every single Israelite, but only those to whom God had specifically and particularly intended. It isn't based on your physical heritage. It is based on something else, he's saying. We could even translate it here as, all who are Israel, these are not Israel. I'll give you a sneak preview of who he's really talking about here. Look at chapter 9, verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. That's the universal group. That's the inclusive group. Only a remnant of them will be saved. That's the particularity. He introduces to us what we know well from our Old Testament as the doctrine of the remnant. The remnant of his people. Look at chapter 11, verse 5. He says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant. And then he adds this, chosen by grace. That's who the true Israel is. You see, the whole argument here from Paul is that there is a, there's a broader ethnic Israel in a physical sense, and then there is a smaller, smaller, more narrow, true Israel, spiritual Israel in the spiritual sense. That's his sure declaration of God's promises to Israel. It is surely declared that to spiritual Israel. 
the true Israel. Not every single Israelite in the whole nation, but to those for whom the promise has specifically and particularly been made. Spiritual Israel. That's the sure declaration. Secondly, look at the specific delineation of God's promises to Israel. Look at the latter part of verse 7. Here now he gives us an illustration. He says, I want to tell you particularly who they are. Who are the ones to receive God's magnificent promises? He says, not all children of Abraham are in simply because they are his offspring, but, and then this quote from that which we read in our scripture reading, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, go down to verse 12, She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul, of course, knowing that he's going to be questioned very specifically on this, gives an answer by way of two illustrations, two specific delineated illustrations about the word of God's promises coming through to those whom God has promised, and those two, of course, are Isaac and Jacob. He wants to give these two illustrations to prove that God's promises will come true. His character is impeccable. He does not lie. And the first illustration he uses is that of God's original word of promise to Abraham through Isaac, the true spiritual Israel that would be redeemed. And he quotes from what we read this morning, Genesis 21:12, and says in effect that it isn't Ishmael who will be called or named, but Isaac who is called by God to inherit the blessing of salvation. And he specifically delineates this particular promise to Abraham through Isaac. Look at verse 8 of Romans 9. This means, he says, that it is not the children of the flesh, that's representative of Ishmael, not the children of the flesh, like Ishmael, who are the children of God, but the children of promise, as represented in Isaac, are counted or reckoned as offspring. That is, true offspring. Spiritual Israel. God had promised Abraham, that he would miraculously conceive a child in the womb of Sarah. And that seed would come from Abraham himself, although miraculously energized by God, who both in their old ages would produce a baby who would be named Isaac. And it was Isaac, not Ishmael, who would be promised salvation. Now, Ishmael was a product of Abraham. But he would be conceived by an Egyptian named Hagar that we read about. And that is 
not God's word of promise to the nation of Israel. You remember that Sarah didn't necessarily initially believe the word of promise, did she? She tried to force the issue. And God allowed that for His own purposes to occur. But His specific word of promise was that Isaac would be the one who would be the progenitor. He would be the one who would be the true Israel. Ishmael and his descendants, as we read, were wanting to be claimed as those who would be blessed by God, and they were blessed at least in a temporal sense. God said He would make a great nation of them, at least temporally. But Paul says here, the children of promise are counted or reckoned, and that's a great word. That's a word that's talking about the word that God spoke to Abraham, that when Abraham believed by faith, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. God gave his righteousness to Isaac and to everyone through Isaac and his descendants who would be the true Israelites, who would be truly a part of the spiritual Israel, not just those who are physically descendant, And in verse 8, he explicitly says that Isaac and his spiritual offspring are counted or reckoned as the true offspring. God's righteousness will be granted to them and not Ishmael and his descendants. But I suppose it is right here that someone says, yeah, but I bet it's because of the fact that Ishmael was born to an Egyptian mother and his word of promise from God to the Israelites is, for the fact that they must have both a Jewish mother and a Jewish father. Aha, maybe that's the issue. Paul says, no, no, it is not. God's word of promise is not simply because Ishmael has an Egyptian mother and a Jewish father. No one should object to God's plan for the Jews and their salvation on this basis. And that's why Paul even goes further. He gives a second illustration to utterly rule out any issue of a human objection or on the basis of some supposed racial partiality by God or anything else. And this is what he says. Look at verse 10. And not only so, not only is this illustration from Isaac an example, but also when Rebekah had conceived children. And of course he's referring to these twins, Jacob and Esau. And he did so by one man, our forefather Isaac. And now here's the elimination of anything that relates to human choice. This is what he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Skip to verse 12. She was told by God, of course, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Jacob, I, God, loved and Esau, I, God, hated. And Paul's argument here, over every conceivable objection about what are the bases of the promises of God to Israel, is what he addresses. It isn't because Ishmael uh, Ishmael was born to an Egyptian mother instead of a Jewish one. 
That doesn't fly. Paul answers very specifically here, and he delineates the position clearly. He says in verse 10 that Rebekah conceived with Isaac, one of the patriarchs of Israel, through one act of intercourse. That's the literal rendering of the phrase, by one man. That is, through one act of seminal emission upon the marriage bed, Jacob and Esau were produced. And he's answering that specific question of saying, you tell me it's because Ishmael had an Egyptian mother. And Paul says, no. I give you another illustration. I give you another example. And it is Jacob and Esau, and they have come directly from one man in one act. That's his point. They were produced by one act through one man and one woman, both Jews. And I tell you, he says, it's because of the sovereign calling and election of Isaac over against Ishmael by God. And it was not due to their having different mothers. And I tell you with this second example that God's word of promise to Israel stands because... Jacob and Esau were fathered and mothered by two people within the house of Israel, and yet, and yet Jacob is chosen and Esau is rejected. It isn't because of race. That's not a valid argument. It isn't because of race. It's because of grace. That's his point. And someone else comes along and says, but wait a minute. If you look at the Old Testament account of Jacob and Esau, you can see Esau's sinfulness coming through. And that must be why God rejected him and chose Jacob. Well, if you know anything about that Old Testament account, Jacob wasn't sinless, was he? Not at all. They were both sinners. They were both sinners before the Lord. They both did evil things, didn't they? And that's why Paul adds here in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. It's an amazing statement. In other words, God's sovereign choice of electing one of these twins to salvation and rejecting the other isn't because of human works. Verse 12 says that Rebekah was told in Genesis 25:23 that two nations were in her womb and that the younger, Jacob, who as we know was later renamed Israel, the very name of the nation, the Israelites, would be served by the older, Esau, who was the head of the Edomites. And according to the prophet Malachi, as I said in Malachi 1, verses 2 to 3, it is Jacob slash Israel that God has chosen. And it is Esau and the Edomites whom God has rejected. Turn back there. We need to read that. Malachi chapter 1. The last Old Testament prophetic word to Israel before John the Baptist and the 400 years of the intertestamental period. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. That's Malachi, not an Italian prophet, Malachi. 
Malachi. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Speaking to Israel, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, Israel, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is a hard word, isn't it? This is a discriminating word. Before they did anything, either good or bad, before they were even born, this sovereign election occurred. And some of you might say, well, maybe this just means that Esau was temporarily rejected and there was still hope that before eternity he would be redeemed, he and his people. But that's not what Malachi says. And that's not what the New Testament says. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." And you say, that's not fair. That, that is unjust of God to choose one of the boys and not the other, especially when it says that God did it before they were born and before they neither did anything good or bad. And Paul anticipates that very thing. And he says in verse 14, and we'll discover it next time, is there injustice with God? That's the objection. That's what somebody is just about to say here. If not saying it, that's not fair. That's unjust. Is there injustice on God's part? He says, by no means. By no means. And that is exactly where we come to in our third point. The sovereign determination of God's promises to Israel. The sovereign determination. Look at the middle part of verse 11. Here's the reason. Here's the answer. Here's why. Here's why there is no injustice on God's part. Although they were not yet born, these twins, and had done nothing either good or bad, here it is, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or might stand or might remain or might abide, not because of works, but because of His call, His sovereign call. You say, that doesn't sound like justice to me. That sounds like an arbitrary, capricious discrimination between the two. Well, that's what some conclude. But then, of course, that impugns the very character of God. 
Paul's answer here is, there is no injustice on God's part. The justice is that God purposes to elect and that that election might stand not because of works, but because of His call. It is the sovereign determination of God Almighty to choose upon whom He will set His promises. And it isn't going to be because of some human being. It isn't going to be because of some nation of people. Even the Jews who believe themselves to be the most favored nation of people. And it isn't the exertion of human will. And it also isn't some capricious, arbitrary desire from this sovereign God Almighty. It is because of His call. Just as if we were to ask the question as Christians, why was I saved? Why was I redeemed? It is the sovereign determination of God to set His grace upon us. Nothing about us. Nothing we did. No exertion of our will. No response of our life. It is the initiating sovereign work of God to dispense His grace to us. And it is the sovereign determination of God to call whom He will call and to reject whom He will reject. It all comes down to His call, my friends. His sovereign determination. And Paul, I'm telling you, nails this thing down as tightly as it could be nailed down. He says first, Jacob and Esau share the same mother and father unlike Isaac and Ishmael, so you can't use that in case anyone brings up that argument. Secondly, God promised that it was Jacob who was chosen based upon His sovereign grace alone and not because of Jacob's work of any kind or his faith. He wasn't even born. Or his own choice, he wasn't even there. But instead, solely upon God's sovereign call. And he even says, thirdly, God chose Jacob even though he was the younger. God's choice is determined solely based upon his sovereign purpose to elect and call. We've already seen this, haven't we? Romans chapter 3, look back there. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. We shouldn't be surprised by this. This is the sovereign determination of God... To do what He wills. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. He says there is no distinction for all. That means both Jews and Gentiles. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified. Justified how? By His grace. As a what? As a gift. You realize that if anybody's redeemed at all out of the mass of sinful humanity that have lived in this world, all of them without distinction are sinners in God's sight. And if He chooses to elect and to call some out of that mass of sinful humanity to set His love and grace upon, He is the sovereign God and He has the sovereign right to do that. And He has the sovereign right to withhold His grace from anybody whom he desires. We'll learn about that when we talk about Moses and Pharaoh. He says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus upon 
whom God has put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive to be received by faith. This is this is consistently taught through the Bible. Even as John 1.12 says it this way, He came, that is, Jesus to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Just like we were talking. These, these Jews, they've rejected their Messiah. They, he came to them and, and He put out His offer to them and they rejected Him. But John says, but to all, either that narrower group, the remnant of Israel, that remnant, or even believing Gentiles, they did receive Him, they did believe in His name, and He gave the right to become the children of God who were born, He says, does John, not by blood, not merely because you're descendants of Abraham, nor of the will of the flesh, not because you were a part of a race of people that you thought you were automatically in, nor of the will of man. It is not because of your own human exertion, but, John says, of God. It's because of the will of God. God decided from eternity past to create out of Sarah's dead womb and even Rebecca's barren womb. Read the accounts. It would not have happened unless God had sovereignly bestowed miraculously upon that seed and upon that womb His regenerating work. It would not have happened otherwise. And aren't you so glad it happened? Aren't you so blessed that it happened? This is a sovereign purposeful choice to elect. That's what Paul says here in Romans 9. And he elected Isaac and Jacob and he rejected Ishmael and Esau. You say, well, why doesn't he just elect everybody? Why isn't it his sovereign purpose for everybody to be saved? Well, that's what I think Paul deals with in verses 14 to 23 which we certainly don't have time to cover this morning. You say, well, then what's the answer? Here's the answer. It is His sovereign call. It's His call, not our call. And someone says, well, but I think it's probably based on the foreseen faith of the individual. Where God looks down through the corridors of time and He sees those who are going to respond to His call and because of their foreseen faith, He then calls them. Paul says that they weren't even born. There's nothing about that in here. They had not done anything either good or bad. And when there's an opportunity for Paul to say something like that, he says this instead. In order that God's purpose of election might stand not because of works, including foreseen faith, but because of His call. I love what St. Augustine said of old. God does not choose us because we believe, but He chooses us that we may believe. That's what God is doing. You say, but... But it seems... As though God would want to do it for everyone. And I've even heard people, as I have 
interacted with them say things like this, but shouldn't God try? Shouldn't that be His attempt? Should I suggest that whatever God tries, He does? Should I say that everything God attempts, He accomplishes? That's why these very words are used here. Verse 7, Through Isaac shall your offspring be called kaleo. That's the word always in Paul that speaks of a sovereign salvation by him. He says in verse 11, in order that God's purpose, the very word purpose is tied in with that predestining work of God, that from eternity past, this is His purpose. And even that word election, God's purpose of election, God's choosing that it might stand, not because of works. But then why? Because of His call. And someone's going to say, but that's not enough. I need more. That's not given to you and me. It's mysterious. But it's no less true. And that is the answer to the question, what about the promises of God? What's the basis? What is the basis of these promises? God's sovereign Election. But I don't think they're convinced. Because he anticipates right there in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? And he doesn't end. He'll give a little bit more of an answer. At least just enough for some people to say, I still don't understand. I still have questions. And even if it comes to the very point, like in verse 19... Where someone either can find fault or believes that God Himself can find fault. He says in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Someone's going to say, well, I want Ishmael and I want Esau. I want them to be chosen. And boy, we live in that kind of society today, don't we? We live in the society today that if your kids go out and play kiddie baseball, everybody has to receive a reward. Everybody has to have a trophy. Everybody has to be first. It's... The world in which we live, to question, to say, God ought to do this, God ought to say this, God ought to call everybody, and ultimately, if He calls everybody, and then someone says, well, even though I know He's called, I'm the ultimate determiner of whether or not I say yes or no, and I say no. But that's not what this passage yields us. It tells us in unmistakable language that in order for the very purpose that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of His call. It is the sovereign determination of the Almighty God of the universe to do what He wills with His creatures, and we do not answer back to Him. 
Is that arbitrary? Is that capricious? Absolutely not. For there is no injustice with God. I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to determine in your own heart to understand these things not fully. None of us could ever do that. But to determine to understand these things from God's perspective, not your own. Might you understand it differently if you were to submit your will to His? To acknowledge that He has the sovereign right to do whatever He desires. To dispense mercy on whom He desires to dispense mercy and to pour out His wrath on those whom He wills to pour out His wrath. O our Father, You are the Creator. We are the creatures. We do not answer back to You. We have no right. And if You have sovereignly determined that out of the mass of sinful humanity you would in your purpose of grace elect some to be the recipients of your blessings even like these Israelites, the true Israelites so that your very promises will be kept. We rejoice. And we rejoice that through them, even the promise of blessing has spilled over into the Gentile world. And that we are the recipients, if we know Christ, of your grace. Oh, Father, may we exalt your grace. May we affirm that you are sovereign and that you may do whatever you please. Thank you for giving us your grace as undeserving sinners. We are not worthy. We could not work. There is no exertion of power or might that would bring us to the threshold of receiving your grace. Indeed, our works are like filthy rags. We ask, Father, that you would grant us through your sovereign purposes a repentance and a faith that speaks of your work in our lives. And when we repent and believe that you would be pleased to give us the precious Holy Spirit who will live in and through us for your glory so that the church would be built up, strengthened, all by your grace. May we repent of believing that it is by our own doing, but it is by your doing that we are in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, I pray for anyone here who is fighting in their spirit against the truth 
the hard truth of Romans 9. May you be pleased to break the fallow ground and bring them quickening that allows them to see the truth. For your glory and honor we pray. Amen.